Today's reading comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 2 and 12 through 14, and chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I, the teacher, when king over Israel in Jerusalem, applied my mind to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to human beings to be busy with. I saw all the deeds that are done under the sun, and see all is vanity and a chasing after wind. I hated all my toil in which I had toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to those who come after me, and who knows whether they will be wise or foolish. Yet they will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned and gave my heart up to despair concerning all the toils of my labor under the sun, because sometimes one who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave all to be enjoyed by another who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What do mortals get from all the toil and strain with which they toil under the sun? For all their days are full of pain, and their work is a vexation. Even at night their minds do not rest. This also is vanity. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Isn't that sweet? Those are just lovely words. Just uplifting and get you up for the day. We are closing today a brief series that we're calling The Big Picture. Throughout these weeks, we've tried to look at some complex subjects, the big picture, and wrap it all up in a small amount of time. So a few weeks back, we looked at the big picture of what it means to be members of the Christian church, disciples of Christ. And then two weeks ago, we looked at the big picture of what religion is really all about. And this morning we're closing it out by looking at the big picture of what is the meaning of life. Just a little topic to grapple with in 17 minutes or so. About five years ago at a men's breakfast, Paul Jones told a story about Rabbi Akiva, who lived at the end of the first century. As the story goes, Rabbi Akiva was out pondering scripture and he got so lost in his meditation that he took a wrong turn and before he knew it he was in front of a Roman garrison and a centurion hollered out, who are you? Why are you here? And Rabbi Akiva said, how much are you paid to ask those questions? And the centurion said, two drachma. And Rabbi Akiva said, I will double your salary if you would stand outside my door and every morning ask me those two questions, who are you and why are you here? You see, those are foundational questions of life. Who am I? It's a question of identity. Why am I here? That's a question of 
purpose, and if you're able to recognize and discern your identity and your purpose, who you are, and why you're here, you might have a stab at figuring out the meaning of life, which is exactly what the author of Ecclesiastes is all about in his 12-chapter book tucked into our Hebrew scriptures, often thought of as Solomon, sometimes spoken of by his Hebrew name Koheleth. Elizabeth read to us the opening where the author says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my mind to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. Do you hear him? Who am I? Why am I here? What's the meaning of life? People have been pondering that question for ages, and as you might imagine, all kinds of different answers have been given. I needed some help being sort of dim-witted, and so I did what we do in the computer age. I googled meaning of life. And the search engine told me that in 0.85 seconds, it had turned up 113 million hits. And I read every one of them this week in preparation for this sermon. Not, not. But here's the thing. All kinds of people across the ages have wondered about the meaning of life. Speaking of life, some of you, if you don't mind dating yourselves, can remember Life Magazine. And back in 1988, Life Magazine had on its cover a big title script and subtitle that said, The Meaning of Life, Why Are We Here?, by the Dalai Lama, Garrison Keillor, Willie Nelson, Rosa Parks, Richard Nixon, Isaac Basheva Singer, and dozens of wise men and women. All of them sort of taking a shot at offering what in their mind is the meaning of life. And I want you to know that the answers in Life magazine run the gamut, but I'll tell you that all of them, and I bet all 113 million responses that Google turns up, can be categorized into four groupings. Uh, some, for instance, say that life has no meaning. In philosophical circles, it's called nihilism, from a Latin word for nothing. We have the word annihilate, okay? Nihilism means nothing. There's no meaning to life. Decades ago, I'm going to date myself, there was a rock group named Kansas, and they had a top ten hit, Dust in the Wind. And the chorus was, dust in the wind, all we are is dust in the wind. Um, dun, 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 dun. I'm being a violin, everybody. Yeah, dust in the wind. There's no meaning to life. We're born, we live, we die, it's over. Ecclesiastes basically begins with that premise. Elizabeth read it, begins by saying, vanity of vanities. 
All is vanity. I saw all the deeds that are done under the sun and see everything is vanity and a chasing after wind. Kansas owes Ecclesiastes some royalties. Big time. All right, the meaning of life, there is none. We're here and we're gone. Dust in the wind. Now, one of the ages old response to nihilism is hedonism. And that just comes from a Greek word that means, that means pleasure. And it makes sense because, hey, if life is meaningless, if you're here and you're gone and it's so brief, might as well enjoy it while you're here. So eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, which is what Ecclesiastes says in chapter 8. Or party, which is what I said in 1978 when I was in college. Just, you know, pleasure principle. You might as well just enjoy yourself. Solomon experimented with the pleasure principle, with hedonism. I'll read it for you. Out of the message paraphrase, he said, I said to myself, let's go for it. Experiment with pleasure. Have a good time. But there was nothing to it. Nothing but smoke. What do I think of the fun-filled life? Insane, inane. And you know he's right. Living by the motto, if it feels good, do it, just doesn't do it. It just doesn't. Sometimes it feels good, whatever it may be, but it doesn't last. And we end up right back where we started, which meant looking for something, anything to fill us and fulfill us. We don't call them passing pleasures for nothing. And so Solomon, who tried hedonism, traded it, the pursuit of pleasure, for materialism, the acquisition of stuff. Listen to what he says. He says, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks. He was a real estate mogul back in olden times. He said, I had great possession of herds and flocks, and I gathered myself silver and gold. He was an entrepreneur. He was a successful businessman. He made a living, all right, and a lucrative one at that, but he discovered that he hadn't made a life for himself and that there's a difference between making a living and living life. And so he wrote, oh, how I prospered. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. And then I considered all the things that my hands had done and the toil I had spent in doing it. And behold, it was all vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And I remember the guy who said, I've spent my life climbing the ladder of success to the top only to realize I leaned my ladder against the wrong wall. Materialism. So much for the pursuit of pleasure and of things. Others have said that to find 
the meaning of life, you must look within, within, within. I, I call this self-actualization, you know, discovering yourself, self-help spirituality. And if you go to the bookstore, you will find a section about yay wide and floor to ceiling that says self-help. All these things that they will just wax eloquently on, uh, you know, discovering the secrets of the inner self. And it never ceases to amaze me how much ink has been spilled and how many pages have been, have been filled with stuff that I just can't even understand. I mean, one respondent to the Life magazine article years ago wrote this. Our purpose is to consciously, deliberately evolve toward a wiser, more liberated and luminous state of being to return to Eden, make friends with the snake, and set up our computers among the fruit trees. Now what? Come again? No, don't come again, actually, because Ecclesiastes doesn't even go down that road at all. Doesn't go down the road of self-actualization at all. And it's just as well. Nihilism, hedonism, materialism, what I'll call meism, <laughs> all four are, are ages old, but ultimately unsatisfying answers to what the meaning of life is, what our identity and purpose is. And then, and then, there's the answer that Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Jesus taught and lived. Namely, that life's purpose is to receive and reciprocate God's love. To receive and reciprocate God's love. Who are you? You're a precious child of God. You were created in the image of God. You are a beloved son and daughter in God's eyes. What are you doing here? Your purpose is to love God and love neighbor. The great commandment. And to till and keep the earth. Care for creation. Call that the great vocation. That's our purpose. What are you doing here? To receive and to reciprocate the love of God. The nihilist says all we are is dust in the wind. But the good book says we are all created in the image of God. Kissed into life by a loving creator and enlivened by the wind of the Holy Spirit. The hedonist says, eat, drink, and be merry. But Mary's son said the deepest pleasure of life is found in being a blessing to others. The materialist says, whoever dies with the most toys wins. But Jesus Christ taught us that the more I empty myself, the more filled and fulfilled I am the self-actualization gurus say, look within. But when you do that, it's just navel-gazing and it'll give you a sore neck after a while. Don't look within. Look up to God and look out 
to neighbors near and far. The meaning of life is receiving and reciprocating the love of God and doing it together with faithful others. I realized this, and that is for the last 40 years, everything I've preached and taught and written and spoken is just commentary on that simple phrase. We're here to receive and reciprocate God's love. Rabbi Akiva and Jesus and wise men and women across the ages have discovered that. That that is the meaning of life. And among those wise men and women was Mr. Bill. I've told some of you about Mr. Bill. His given name was Alexander Campbell Reed Jr. Now he was a disciple. His daddy was Alexander Campbell Reed Sr. He was the head elder of the church that Jenny and I served when we were just beginning in 1982, 40 years ago, in Carthage, Tennessee. And I'll never forget on our last Sunday at that church that had called me into ministry, that had put up with my early efforts at trying to be a preacher and teacher and pastor, that church on whose steps I knelt and was ordained, that church that made Jenny's wedding dress for her, that church that blessed us in so many ways. On the last Sunday we were there, we had sort of a going away fellowship supper. And in that little church, which was in its entirety about the size of the center section of our sanctuary, what we did on those Sundays was to move the pews out of the way and set up some card tables real quick after worship and quickly set them. And then we would go through the line of the small kitchen and make our way out for the meal, and I'll never forget, I got to be first in line that Sunday with Mr. Bill, and we got back to our table, and we sat down with these paper platters that were just groaning under the weight of fried chicken and Francis Sue's squash casserole and Polly Alcorn's dumplings and Billy Roos chocolate pie and homemade biscuits and garden-grown green beans cooked in fatback for about 25 years and served up just sort of limp and mushy. I'm telling you, and that was just the first time through the line. And I sat down, and since the blessing had been said, I grabbed my fork, and I was ready to reach down, and Mr. Bill's hand came across the table and pushed my hand down to the table. And without saying a word, he pointed to me. And then he took his hand. And he started to make this panoramic spread throughout that entire church. He took in the pews where we gathered to worship for the two and a half years that I was their pastor. Past the front door where when I came in every Sunday, he would say, Come in this house, David Shire. The little narthex of about 35 square feet where Jenny and I taught Sunday school to the three children who were the members of that church. On in past the other pews, past the pulpit, the little coffee area where we'd sit around the table in between the, my arrival and the beginning of Sunday school to have coffee and to talk about the scripture of the day. The single toilet that was behind the baptistry. 
onto a little kitchenette where we prepared communion every Sunday, out to where the piano was, and right there where the organ was that was built by the world-renowned organ builder, Mr. Wurlitzer. Yeah, I was in there, I'm telling you. We did this whole spread of that entire congregation. And then he looked at me and he said, David Shirey, it don't get any better than this. Speaking of which, I walked into the office this past Monday morning after our picnic last Sunday. And I don't know, Kim Foltz, our administrative assistant, must have seen sort of a Cheshire cat grin on my face. And she said, what are you, what are you smiling about? And what came out of my mouth was, I have a happy hangover this morning. For the food that we shared and the fellowship that we had and the opportunity I had with our youth and children to choose up sides and, and play cornhole and ladder ball, I had a happy hangover. And again, this morning after yesterday's men's breakfast and all the food that we ate and the fellowship that we had and the kibbutzin that takes place in the, the kitchen in the hour and a half leading up to serving the food and Todd Ball's gravy, sausage gravy, and I just thought to myself, and then this morning, I get to come and for the 400th plus time to gather with you in this venerable sanctuary and worship God together. And so if, if you see a smile on my face this morning, if, if you hear uh, sort of an ooh or an awe or a yes or an amen for me, if you see me lift my hand in an, in an acclamation, it's just because together in Christ we are drinking deeply from that wellspring that Maya Angelou calls the life that is life. Capital L. I know the church goes sour sometimes, everybody. I know people get stung by the church bees. They get bruised and burned and bored and badgered and become bewildered and walk away from the hive and determine never to come close again. And I know that there are some Christians who are stinkers. That's a Hebrew word for another word I won't speak in here. But I want you to know that all of that stuff is the exception to the rule. The rule is life together in Christ, in a congregation that knows the meaning of life, gives cause day in and day out for rejoicing and thanksgiving. What rich, full years we have had together, together receiving and reciprocating God's love. Central Christian Church, it don't get any better than this. Let all who have seen and tasted the meaning of life say, Amen.